0: Would you hear with me the word of God? Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man, that you remember him? Or the son of man, that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than, Than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason... He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. So to complete the argument that Jesus is better than the angels, in these verses, the author takes up two questions that are implied behind this text. The first is this, if Jesus is really the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords, God of God, then why in the world doesn't it seem that way sometimes? Why does the world sometimes see like, seem like it's falling apart at the seams? Secondly, if Jesus is a man who suffered and died, isn't he less than the angels who have not suffered and do not die? So these are the two questions that are sort of in the background of the text that we've just read. And what we learn in reading this text, and remember the context is, there's a church that's being persecuted for their faith in Christ. All right. So what we learn is to live faithfully for Jesus in this world, we must not be discouraged by what we do not yet see. And secondly, we must see that God the Son became the man Jesus To suffer and die and save sinners there was a purpose to his coming to die and that purpose does not nullify his greatness so he is both sovereign over the world even though it doesn't seem that way and he is savior of mankind by his coming from heaven to become a man and die for us so first we must not be discouraged by what we do not yet see back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see the purposes for the creation of mankind. And we learn that one of the purposes for the creation of man is that we would rule the world on behalf of God, our Creator. It says in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in the beginning, God creates humanity to rule the world for him as an act of obedience and worship. But Adam and Eve's sin leads them out of the Garden of Eden and into death. Death is a major impediment to the dominion mankind is intended to have on the earth. Just as soon as you get good. Just as soon as you obtain wisdom, just as soon as you've figured life out, guess what? Age catches up to you. And then the cycle starts all over again. Humanity is not able to have the dominion that they were intended to have because humanity is subject to death. We are subject to spiritual separation from God and a physical death where food comes Only by the sweat of the brow, where childbirth is difficult, and where eventually people age, they wear out, and they die. Because of death, people do not have dominion over the earth. Death has dominion over them. And what this means is we do not now see the world as it should be, or as it will be. The administration of this present world is not according to God's original design. And in Deuteronomy 32.8, in the Greek translation, we read this, that God fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, or of angels, which implies that the administration of the nations has been parceled out among a number of angelic powers Yes, still subject to God's ultimate authority, but for a while, things are not as they will be. This is all in the background of verse 5, where the author says, He did not subject to angels the world to come. The author is saying this, Look, I understand that the world's not as it will be, and that angels play an important role in the present age, but I am talking to you about the world to come. And in a world that's messed up, you should keep your focus on the world to come, a world which has come and is breaking in because of Christ. When this world seems to be falling apart and against you and against the people who follow Jesus, we must not let what we now do not see determine our faithfulness to Christ. Instead, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on the world to come, a world where the subjection Where the coming under of Christ, everything coming under Christ, will be plain for everyone to see. In verses six through eight, the author quotes from Psalm chapter eight, verses four through six. Now he says something that's fascinating. It's you wouldn't get away with this scripture reference in your seminary class. Somewhere somebody said, and then he quotes from Psalm chapter eight. And the question you might have is, well, did he know who wrote it, and did he know where it was? His familiarity with the Old Testament is phenomenal. Of course he knew who wrote it, and of course he knew where he could find it. But his point is, it doesn't matter that David wrote it. It doesn't really matter where you can find it. It's Scripture. And if it's Scripture, it points to Christ. And he almost doesn't want them to get hung up on all the details. He just wants them to say, The psalmist is writing about Jesus. And so he quotes from Psalm 8, 4 through 6, to prove that even after mankind fell into sin, that the Old Testament anticipates a day when God's design and his purpose for people is restored through Jesus. Jesus would be the ideal human son and the son of man who is made for a little while like humanity, lower than the angels, but then because of his obedience is crowned with glory and honor so that he might restore all of mankind who trusts in him to their rightful purpose under his sovereign rule. In other words, Jesus brings the garden back and he's the only way back to the garden. The dominion that people were created to have over the earth for God is not something that you can get on your own. No matter how hard you try to tend your grass and make it subject to your rule, next year, next spring, the weeds will be back. This is something that can only come to fruition through Christ. And it will come to fruition through Christ. For it says in verse 8, He leaves nothing that is not subject to Him. The totality of Jesus' authority over all things is signified in verse 8 by the repetition of the word subject. It's four times in one verse. The word means to come under the authority of another, to willingly line up under another. Church, in the world to come, not in this world, but in the world to come, everything that exists, everything that remains in the world to come will willingly be subjected to the authority of Christ. Now right now everything's under Christ's rule, but he is allowed for a season for things to not always seem as they ought to be. But in the world to come everything will willingly be subjected to the rule of Christ, which means for us we live with attention we live with the tension that comes for those who live between two worlds. We live in the overlap of two ages. Christ has come and the age to come has broken into our existence. And yet there are times that, that evil seems rampant and things happen that drive us crazy and Christians are persecuted. So in the present, we've got to remember that God has allowed Satan for a time to be the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. And the ruler of this world system, John twelve thirty one, Which means we should not be surprised when the people of God face adversity in this world. But praise God, this is not the world that is coming through Christ. In the world to come, Satan is judged and he's cast out. And all that remains in the new heavens and the new earth will willingly and gladly acknowledge Jesus, who was crowned with glory and honor in his resurrection and his ascension. A day is coming when everything and everyone that remains in the world is joyfully submitted to Christ. But the challenge for us this morning is that's not the reality we presently see. We see a world of frustrated hopes and plans. We see a world of natural disasters, of political turmoil, a world of temptation and struggle and poverty and adversity and miscarriage, terrorism, domestic violence, addiction, abandonment, abortion, mass shooting, disease, betrayal, sabotage, fatigue, decay, and ultimately a world dominated by death. We see a world in which those who follow King Jesus are marginalized and maligned and even murdered, a world where death dominates those that were made to have dominion. And the temptation for us when things aren't going as they ought, the temptation is to forget the world to come and simply play by the rules and the ethics of this world and say, well, let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But praise God, the world is not the way that it's going to be when worldliness is vanquished at Christ's return. And because that is true, in verse 9, the author flips from what we do not see to what we do see. While we do not see the world as it will be under the rule and reign and authority of Christ, we do see Christ. Do you see that in verse 9? Look at verse 9. But we do see him. Do you see him? Are you able to see him in the midst of the muck and the mire of a messy existence? Can you still fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith? Church, this is what the author is urging us to do. We've got to see, and it's in the present tense, keep on seeing that God the Son became a man, the man Jesus, to suffer and die for sinners. This is the first time we see the name Jesus in the entire book of Hebrews. He's been building to it. And now he's saying, look, Jesus is God. Just because he came down to die doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. The way to remain faithful to the Son in the present world is to trust Him with your future by seeing who He is and what He has done for sinners in the past. Let me say that again. The way to remain faithful to the Son of God in the present is to trust Him with your future by seeing who He is and what He's already done for sinners in the past. And look at what He's done. Look at verse 9. Although He is God the Son and was made for a little while lower than the angels, he's still God. In becoming for a little while lower than the angels, this means that God set aside the privileges of deity in order to become a man given the name Jesus. I I, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate what happens in the incarnation. And this is not a a sufficient illustration, but Jesus self-limited himself. He willingly condescended and came down and assumed our humanity. And sometimes you've got to self-limit. Like like when I play ping pong against Pastor Hope, I feel bad for him. And so sometimes I just take a little bit off the gas, you know, so that he can think that he can play with me. Because I don't want him to stop playing ping pong against me and never play again. So I self-limit so that Hope feels like he has a chance to compete against me. And and sometimes I wish Pastor Ethan would do that for me, but he never does. So so Jesus, in a much greater way, limits the privileges. Uh, It doesn't mean he stops being divine. It doesn't mean he stops having the capacity to do everything that God does. But he limits himself in assuming our humanity. And for a little while, in his humanity, is made lower than the angels. Why? Why? For us, so that he could pay the penalty of death for human sin, so that death, which interferes with man's dominion, might be removed in the world to come. For the world to come, to have people in it who do not die. Somebody had to die for people. Jesus came and did that. He obeyed the Father perfectly and therefore is crowned with glory and honor as King of kings and Lord of lords. Moeller says it this way, Jesus has fulfilled the messianic task of suffering and death. Jesus followed the Heavenly Father's plan all the way to the cross, and the Father therefore gave Him the name above every other name. The dominion that we were made for, that we could never win back, God the Son came down and won it for us. As Schreiner says, the rule of human beings has become reality in Jesus, And get this, Jesus did not win just for himself. Do you see that in verse 9? He experienced death for everyone. I love that little preposition for. For everyone. You know what the word for means? In Greek it's hooper. It means on behalf of or for the sake of. In other words, Jesus came for sinners. He came on their behalf. In this one little word is communicated the truth of the gospel that we deserve to die and someone came to die for us, in our place, for our sake, on our behalf. He came to pay the price of death for sinners with his own life. And in the world to come, everyone who submits willingly to Jesus' rule right now will share in His forever reign. The world to come is not administered by angels, but by Jesus and all who trust in Him. Indeed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that we will judge the angels. No, no angel died for you, only Jesus did. Therefore, we must not abandon Jesus as the substitute for saviors. He's the only eternal, begotten, firstborn Son of the Father who has conquered death and can give you everlasting life and purpose in the presence of God forever. And all of this, verse 9, is by the grace of God. Do you see that in verse 9? By the grace of God. We didn't deserve for Jesus to come down for us. He didn't have to come and spend his life for us, but the only way for a world to be made as it was in the beginning and for people to have dominion, not interrupted by death, was for him to come down and rescue sinners. It's all of grace. Grace means the generosity of God, the undeserved and unmerited favor of God. We're saved by the grace of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In grace, God sent and gave His Son. In grace, the Son freely offered Himself to die for sinners. Sinners had no way to remove death or overcome the debt of death that their sin deserved. Zero, nada, zilch, none. So God the Son came down to taste death for us. That's grace. That's grace. It's the message that we've heard over and over again. And it is the message that Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, we must pay closer attention to it. Because the temptation in our lives is to begin to think that we did something. It's to begin to think, well, I earned it, or I deserved it, or I've been here a long time, or I've been a Christian so long, look at me, aren't I so good? No, it's all by the grace of God. Jesus tasted death for us. We could not die for ourselves and produce life. Only Jesus could do that. Do you see that in verse 9? He tasted death for us. You know what the word taste means? It doesn't mean a nibble. It means to experience something directly and fully. My family, just a couple weeks ago, went down to Dollywood and... My son, in preparing to go to Dollywood, found these professionally produced videos of all the roller coaster rides because now he's just barely tall enough to ride just about everything in the park. And he's been a little bit of a, a eh, little scared of going, but he, he got himself prepared by watching all these videos. He watched Lightning Rod and the Wild Eagle, which you're suspended like a bird and you go down this huge hill and you do loops and he was ready to go man, ready to go. And when we got in line for the wild eagle and got into that stall, he said you know dad, I think I'm, I think I'm good. And I said buddy, you are riding this ride. And I pushed him through the stall and got him into the seat and he was trying to hop out and I strapped his strapped him in there and he's like dad and then finally the lady came and convinced him that this ride was actually easier than one he had already done and he's flailing and locked in boom he's gone here's what you need to know church Jesus didn't nibble at death he didn't think about it he didn't read about it he didn't fake it he suffered and bled and died The most horrific, gruesome death that one could experience. And he did it for you. Jesus is the last and the true and the better Adam. In the Garden of Eden, the first Adam plunged us into death. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus resolved to jump into every aspect of human death so that we could have a forever share in his resurrection and life. All of this is by the grace of God. In verse 10, we get a deeper explanation of what it means in verse 3, that we have a great salvation, this great salvation that comes through Jesus. First in verse 9, it's provided by Jesus. It's all of grace. And then in verse 10, we see that the Father sent Jesus to restore us to our purpose. So first, in verse 9, Jesus is the way that God provides a gracious salvation Then in verse 10, the father sent Jesus to restore us to our purpose, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The imagery of God bringing sons and daughters to glory comes out of the Old Testament. Do you remember when the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and God brings them out of slavery? Well, the imagery here is the same, but greater. God brings us out of something even greater. He brings us out of the slavery to sin and death and brings us into glory. Glory is associated with the power and the presence of God. Through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we can know even in this world that's not as it should be, the power and the presence of God. Jesus accomplishes for His Father what we read about in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 6 and 7 bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth everyone who is called by my name and whom i have created for my glory why does north roanoke baptist church exist to declare and show and reveal and proclaim the glory of god that we have known and experienced in being changed from those who were sons of the wicked one to sons and daughters of god through the blood of jesus The many sons and daughters that Jesus brings to the Father are those who reject their sin and their worship of themselves and instead trust in Jesus and worship Him. Verse 10 also shows us that salvation through Jesus is proper. Salvation through Jesus is proper or fitting. This is the question How is it that you worship a God who came to die? It doesn't make sense. And so the author says to us, it's fitting or proper that Christ would come and die. It doesn't mean that he ceases to be God just because he's a little lower than the angels. Rather, it means that he found a way to rescue you even though he was God. O'Brien says this, the idea of a crucified Lord was a scandal to the first century world and it remains a scandal today because if the our only hope is that somebody else would die for us guess what that means we were guilty we were wicked we were despicable we had no hope we weren't a little bit good and a little bit bad we were on the highway to hell and the only opportunity we had to be rescued was that someone other than us came into time and space and entered into and participated in our humanity to pay for our high crimes and misdemeanors against a holy, eternal, and infinite God. And God Himself came and did that. How is it grace? It's grace because God Himself is the one who gave the gift. He didn't go find somebody else to donate the gift. This is, this is not a re-gifting at Christmas, when you get that thing that you really didn't want, and you save it for another year, and you wrap it up and give it to somebody else who doesn't want it, God gave Himself to us so that we could have the life of God. We needed a qualified substitute to take our place. Not just any substitute, we needed a perfect gift. This is what verse 10 continues to tell us. It's what is meant in verse 10 that Jesus is perfected by Sufferings. It doesn't mean that Jesus was not already perfect. It means that the perfection that he had was proven by his endurance in the face of suffering. Because Jesus is perfect, because of his perfect obedience in the face of suffering, we know that he is the perfect sacrifice. He faces tremendous pressure to walk away from the Father's plan, a crucifixion that he did not deserve, but he did not walk away. And his obedience is vindicated in his resurrection. He is now crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of the Father. The path by which death is conquered for humanity has been blazed by Jesus Christ. He is the pioneer of our salvation or the author of of our salvation. There is salvation given under one name. It's the name of Jesus. If salvation was a book, it has one author and his name is Jesus. If you want to be saved, you've got to run to Jesus because in Jesus, death has already been conquered. The obedient life that had to be lived has already been lived and the resurrection that you so desire so that you can have dominion in the new heavens and the new earth and really live in the way that God intended for humanity to live. All of that is possible through Jesus Christ alone. Finally, we see in verses 11 through 13 that salvation through Jesus fulfills the promise that sinners will be rescued and become the people of God. Salvation through Jesus fulfills the promise that sinners will be rescued and become the people of God. Verse 11 tells us that the one who sanctifies which is Jesus and those who are sanctified which is those who trust in him that we are rescued by God through the death and resurrection of Christ that we are all from one Father literally the text says that we are all of one now how is this possible if Jesus is God and we are not How are Jesus and humanity of the same thing? What in the world is he talking about? He's talking about the opportunity because Jesus became a man to rescue men that the resurrection power of God that raised him from the dead is the same power that God uses to save us and sanctify us, to set us apart as the people of God. So because Jesus became a man, we can experience on the day that He returns the same resurrection power that He experienced when He broke out of that tomb on the third day. And we can experience that same power in the here and now because when He saves us, He changes our hearts and sets us apart as as the people of God and gives us new desires and appetites and affections for the things of God. We are of the same We are of the same Father. And this is possible because Jesus became a man. Church, this is the gospel. This is the beautiful gospel because Jesus became a person to die for people. Those who were once not a people can now be the people of God. C.S. Lewis said it this way. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. And because Jesus, because of Jesus, those who trust in him have in common being beneficiaries of the resurrection power of God. And look at verse 11. If you've trusted in Christ, if he's changed you and adopted you as a son or daughter of God, he is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister, to call you brethren. And then in verse 12, he quotes from Psalm chapter 22, verse Twelve. Excuse me, verse 22. This is amazing. Do you remember Psalm 22, how it begins? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember who quotes that from the cross? Jesus says, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this psalm is about the crucifixion of Jesus. And it looks like everything's over. It looks like the Son of God is going to be destroyed. That He's not going to be vindicated. And then around the middle of the psalm, He pleased. Father, see my sacrifice, and as you see my sacrifice, give me the children. Give me the brothers and sisters that you promised that you would give me, and I will praise you in the midst of that throng of people, in the midst of that congregation of people. And do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing? He's saying the Old Testament nailed it. The Old Testament knew exactly what was happening. He knew that the Messiah would come and that he would die and that in his death that he would be raised on the third day and he would have brothers and sisters made his own through his own blood. Jesus got exactly what he came and died for. He got brothers and sisters who would populate the world to come forevermore. And then in verse 13, we see a quotation from Isaiah chapter 8. We aren't just the brothers and sisters of Jesus. We are also the children of God. In Isaiah chapter 8, it looks like that the, king, that the kingly line of David is going to be forever undermined. That there's going to be no more king of David. That King Ahaz is going to be taken out. And there's not going to be another son. And Isaiah trusts in the Lord. And likewise, Jesus trusts in God. The Lord, and he says this, I will put my trust in him. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. God the Father gives to his Son a people. And the people who belong to him as his children are those who place their hope and their faith and their trust in Christ alone. So the question that verses 5 through 13 pose for us is this. In a world of adversity and hostility and heartache and even persecution, are you going to quit? Or are you going to look to Jesus, who is sovereign without question in the world to come and Savior of all who trust in him?